you know, all of life has these these moments, these crossroads where <clears throat> you come to decisions and you don't understand the importance of them. I mean, you may later on, but you, you come to many decisions that seem very, very insignificant to you, but later on you see them as being quite significant. Um, for Carol and I, when we got married, um, I was a CPA, had a practice, and I had two kids, had a house. It looked like life was going to be fairly straight. I mean, we were kind of in, in a groove that seemed, we had our family around us, we were in the town that we were raised in. It just seemed like life was going in a certain direction. And uh, we happened to go to a Christian, con- uh, a Christian concert and uh, didn't know much about the, about the singer, but we liked his voice. And so we went, and unbeknownst to us, he was uh, advancing this mission group. And uh, he talked about it and the plight of the Eastern Europeans. It was back in the mid-'80s, and so the, the Iron Curtain was still up, and and these Eastern Europeans were trying to get to Western Europe for freedom. And uh, kind of pulled at my heart a little bit. And so we left the conference, and I remember saying, we ought to give a little bit, you know, we ought to help financially with this ministry. It seems like a good ministry. And that was all it was to me. So we had the little form. And it had a, I'll never forget, it had a little box there. It said, if you want more information, just check it. And I thought, well, let me just check it. And I remember Carol even saying, what do you need more information for? I don't know. It's just a little box. I mean, it doesn't hurt to just check it. So it seemed like a very, very insignificant issue. I checked it. So we mailed it. And uh, I don't know, about a week later, I get a phone call from the mission organization that was sending a person not related to us, happened to be coming to the very town that we lived in. Now, the irony was she was walking out, as we came to find out later, she was walking out the door, saw the mail, saw our name, saw the town. That was the town that she was going to. So she just called up and said, hey, can I speak with you guys for 45 minutes, just share the organization with you and just explain a little bit of it to you. And we thought, man, why not? I mean, let's go ahead and just chat with her. There was no intention at all to ever go overseas, to ever serve, to ever change a course in our life. And after that meeting, it kind of was like a spark on dry leaves. I mean, it just began to burn. And then here we look back, you know, all these years later, and just from checking a box, setting off a conversation, seems so insignificant, and yet God changed our lives so dramatically and the course of our life. I'm sure that many of you have a similar experience where you look back now and what seems to be insignificant really played a big role. That's what we kind of have here in the book of Ruth. This book of Ruth, it's only two books in the Bible are named after women. This book, of course, and Esther. A lot of people read it and think it's a treatise on how to handle relationships, particularly with your mother-in-law. Or it's a book about a love story, which it does include both those things. But there's so much more. G. Campbell Morgan, a British pastor in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries, wrote this. He says, never measure a book by its bulk. This little brochure of a few pages is one of the rarest and most beautiful gems in all of literature. It's really incredible. It's a story of, a, of a, just a dynamic woman, but it's set 
in this foundation of a sovereign and good God moving his redemptive purposes in mysterious ways in very dark times. We're going to see through her life as we study this book faith in the midst of apostasy, the kindness of God being displayed to very ordinary people, and the power of God working through darkness. My prayer, as we go over these four chapters, will be that your hope in God in the midst of trials will be strengthened, and your ability to walk by faith, seeing the hidden mercies of God, will be increased. Now, it's four chapters. A lot of preachers, when they preach this, it's very tempting to go to third and fourth chapter and bring some of the gems uh, back to the first and second chapters to help you understand it. I'm going to try to not do that. I want to just stay chapter one, two. It's going to build. You know, natural story kind of builds with attention. I want to let the tension remain. So I'm not going to be able to tie up every loose end. Won't satisfy every question that you may have. There may be some unanswered issues like, well, what happened? We'll try to tie them up as we go along, but I want to maintain that tension as we go through. So we're going to look at this first chapter, and you're going to see that it's got three movements to it. They're geographical movements. They're going to go from from Bethlehem to Moab, which is a country to the east, about 50 miles, stay there for about 10 years, and then come back. But I want to look at it more theologically in the sense of we're going to see the depth of misery in this family that, of course, we all experience to a measure. We're going to see the depth of misery in the first five verses. And then we're going to see how they respond to the misery. And we're going to be instructed by that. And then in the last little bit, we're going to see how to view the hidden mercy of God as it begins to be revealed in very, very faint shadows, but it begins to be revealed. Christie's going to read the chapter for us. With a long chapter, sometimes it's good to have a different voice. It maintains your attention, so she's going to read for us chapter 1. Please follow along with her. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? 
Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So you have this depth of misery that I think is almost breathtaking. It's overwhelming. I mean, at many levels, right? You, you You have this time of just social decay, social upheaval. You see it in the first verse where he says, "...in the days when the judges ruled." Now, that's describing a period in Israel's history when judges ruled. So it was after Joshua, excuse me, Joshua, the servant of Moses, brings people in the promised land, and it's before Saul, the king, is coronated. So it's this time of judges, and it was a time of great social decay. They were ruled by judges. You know some of these judges. You know the name Samson. Perhaps you know the name Gideon. Other names of Isbon or Elon or Ehud. They may not be as familiar to you, but these were judges. They were military heroes, and they would they would move to lead the people out of sin and out of <clears throat> oppression, and then they would be able to return them to God, only to fall back into sin. There was a cycle within judges that the people would sin, God would bring judgment, and then they would cry out in repentance, and then a judge would be raised up, and over and over and over it went. So it was a time of great moral decay. You'll even see this in chapter 2 in Ruth, where Boaz has to say to Ruth, don't go to that field or you'll be assaulted there. Or stay in this field because I've instructed my men to not touch you. It's lawlessness. It's the Wild West. That's how degenerate this culture had become. So there's great social decay, but there was also, there's also the great physical struggle of a famine. Note the famine here. It says there was a famine in the land. Now, we don't understand here in the West famine. And we may come to the table and say, I'm starving to death. We don't know what that means. Famines devastated communities. Now, some people want to see this as a famine brought by God. It's debatable. Leviticus 26 Deuteronomy 28 says that when you sin against God, the skies will become like brass. It could be that. But we, we, we have Genesis 3, which reminds us the nature of sin has brought a curse to the world and 
part of the result of the curse is famine. Either way, the famine is seen as, as moving Elimelech over to Moab. Now, this, there's an irony here. Bethlehem, his hometown, means house of bread. But he has no bread there. So he has to go to Moab. Now, Moab was, a, was a, an enemy of Israel. Not only was the nation forged out of an incestuous relationship between a father and a daughter, but, but remember Moab, the king of Moab, was the one that hired Balaam, a prophet, to curse Israel as Israel was wandering, moving on the way to the promised land. So, so to go to Moab is speaking just about the horridness of this famine. But there's more than a famine. There's more of a social and a physical. There's also spiritual brokenness to this place. You know, there's a recurring theme in Judges that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It kind of speaks to the moral and the spiritual tatters of the place. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, it says, says this, that the word of the Lord was rare and there was no frequent vision. In other words, Samuel was one of the judges and he was speaking about the nature of, there's like a spiritual vacuum. Nobody was seeking God. His word wasn't being spoken. Visions weren't being offered by God. It was a time of great darkness. But, but now the lens kind of focuses a little more now on this particular family. You've got the social decay. You've got the physical challenge. You have this, this spiritual darkness. Another irony is Elimelech, his name means my God is king, and yet he's got to go out of the kingdom to get bread. So it's a dark time. But now the, now the, the um, camera focuses a little more intently on Naomi and Elimelech and her sons. And what we read is Elimelech dies when he gets over there. We don't know when. We don't know how. We don't know anything. We just know that he dies. And then, and then it says, if you notice in the text, his sons, and then it says her sons. She now has full responsibility. And, and then we read that they take Moabite wives. Now, again, there's a debate. Is this, is this the wrong thing to do? Is that the right thing to do? Well, I'll save that debate for later. But, but let me say this. I imagine it brought a measure of hope, perhaps, to Naomi. Okay, now the kids are married. Now there'll be some grandchildren. And the line of Elimelech will continue. But then we read they die. Again, no explanation. No, notice the terseness, and they died. Don't you? Aren't you asking why? How? What's going on here? And then to add insult to injury, <clears throat> excuse me. There are no children. She's on the edge of extinction. And look in verse five. It says the woman had no husband and no sons. Naomi, ironically, her name means pleasant is no longer pleasant. <clears throat> she has no name. She's lost her identity. We're kind of standing here, or we should be feeling, on the edge of this chasm of misery in which she's just fallen. I mean, it is that dark. Now again, the debate over God's divine displeasure <clears throat> or just the normal outworkings of sin, either way, we're left with what despair. This great suffering. And, and while we may not experience these famines in the land, all of us know to a degree the suffering. I mean, many of you have struggled with the loss of a spouse. Or perhaps you're just in a hardened marital unhappiness or barrenness. Or you want to be married and you're not. <clears throat> or financial peril. Or you're just 
you're just knee deep in parenting and all of those struggles associated with it. I mean, the list goes on and on. When you're in this kind of misery, what do you do? How do you respond? How do you respond when others are in it? I mean, do you tend to do the normal reflex of why? Why, God? Why did you allow this? Why did this happen? I mean, we do tend to go there. And you know what? Even the non-Christian, even the non-Christian who will not think about God for years on end, when tragedy comes, the whys come out. And in a way, I don't mind that. The reason I don't mind it is because it presumes some natural order. It it presumes there should be a design. There should be a purpose behind it. That that there's some greater force. We want to get meaning out of this. But maybe you're in a real jam right now. And you're really asking, who's in charge? God, are you in charge here? I mean, what's really going on? So that's kind of where we are in this first movement. These first five verses, we're just left kind of with this kind of vacant feeling. Okay, let's look at the next movement of the text because you see the responses. That's the depth of misery. Then you see the three responses. These are three women, these are three widows, and they all respond differently to this crisis. And you see just a glimmer of hope in verse 6 and 7. Look what it says in 6 and 7. He says, For she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So I want you to see this. It's kind of like the initial rays of the sun in the morning beginning to just penetrate the blackness of dawn. Just a little bit of hope. There's hope here. God's giving food. Reminded them of the desert wanderings. God feeding the Israelites through the manna on the ground. It made it would draw our minds to Elijah feeding him, or maybe even all the way to Jesus feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000. But there's hope here. And Naomi begins to return. And I think there's a spiritual issue here because the Hebrew word is such that it, it's a turning back. It's like a converting. It's like a converting word. She turns back. And then in 8 through 13, <clears throat> as Christy read, you have this dialogue that goes on three times. Naomi is trying to push them back to Moab. This is like an anti-evangelism campaign. Well, it's not that at all. I think Naomi is acting in kindness. She knows she has nothing for these women. She's got nothing. And to bring back two Moabite women to a Jewish world, no language, no culture, no connection, there'd be no marriage, There'd be barrenness and widowhood for their lives. She says to them, can I get married and have a child and raise them up for you to marry? Now, that's a Levitical custom in the Old Testament where if a man dies and he left a woman, a wife, that a brother or near relative would marry the woman and either bring up a child in the deceased name. But, But it was there to protect the woman to shield the woman, to be a covering to the woman, and, and, and to raise up the child. It's, it's significant to not let a line of a family in Israel go extinct, but to carry on the line. And so Naomi's saying, well, I'm probably she at this point is over 50 years old, and so am I going to get married and have children raise them? Of course, it's seemingly impossible that she could provide a husband. Seemingly impossible that she could provide a husband. And so she's urging them, go back, go back. So Naomi's traveling back down the slopes of Moab, moving back to Jerusalem, up the slopes to Bethlehem. And then we see the response of the daughters. Daughters Daughters-in-law, Orpah, what does she say? It says she kissed her mother-in-law. In In other words, 
ending of a formal relationship. At one level, you have to admit it makes sense. I mean, it really is a safe decision. She's going back to her people, her culture, her language, her family. Perhaps she got married again. Got married, had children, lived a long life. Now, if, if this seems like a good turn of events for you, I want you to rethink that. If you think, yeah, well, you know what, making lemonade out of lemon. If this seems good to you, note that the flow of redemptive history moves on beyond her. She kind of just walks off the pages of Scripture. We don't hear anything. It's a sad day. It's a sad day that Orpah went back to her gods. Ruth, on the other hand, it's a different story. So whereas Orpah kissed and left, Ruth clings and stays. And that word for cling is out of Genesis 2.24, the same word where a man is to cleave to his wife, to adhere like glue. She's not letting go of Naomi. She's going to stay. Now, let me just remind you, this was not a smart decision at a horizontal level. This does not make a lot of sense. This is a risky move. She's embracing to follow this Naomi and her God. She will have to leave her family, her customs, her language, her upbringing. She'll have to embrace a new people, a new language, a new culture. In all likelihood, from her perspective, she has to embrace widowhood because she won't be married again. She has to embrace barrenness because she'll never have children. But she wants to follow this God of Naomi. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. The language is beautiful. She says this, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. When you die, I will die, and I, there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What's remarkable about these words is it's, it's really a confession of faith. It's a conversion, if you will. I mean, she's wanting to follow this God. It's the same language or very similar language as the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 17. She's saying the God of Abraham is now the God of Ruth. Do you notice she says, I want to be buried there. See, in ancient Near East culture, to be buried in the land is to submit yourself to the gods of that land for blessings or curses. And so if, if the gods... If you're buried in a land, you're submitting yourself to those gods. She's saying, I want to be in the dirt of Israel. I want to be in the dirt of Yahweh. I'm submitting myself. Not only that, do you notice that she brings a curse upon herself that if anything separates her outside of death, she'll be cursed. I mean, she is committing herself completely, without limit, without any sort of restrictions, committing herself to Naomi, but much more than Naomi, to the God of Naomi. Like one scholar wrote this about the beauty of her faith. He said this, Ruth's leap of faith even outdid Abraham's as she acted with no promise in hand, no divine pronouncement, no spouse, no possessions, no supporting retinue. She followed God with nothing. Incredible. Let me just ask you to take away this thought at this stage of the story here. Consider for a minute that tragedy, even dark circumstances, do not make or mar faith. They reveal it. They don't make or mar faith. You have these two women, two women, same country, same language, same background, same religious customs. They marry into the same family. They go through the same suffering 
with two brothers. One kisses and leaves, and the other clings. How do you figure that? God is not threatened by circumstances in how he distributes his grace and calls people to himself. I mean, the, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, The Surprising Narrative, uh, Narratives of Surprising Acts of God in Conversion. And he wrote about the remarkable conversions in New England in the, in the 18th century, just trying to defend, no, these are legit. They're surprising conversions. We're surprised by this. God does this great work for us. But it shows us a picture of true conversion here. This, this unbridled devotion for God that's meted out in an unbridled devotion for God's people. I mean, it's like the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a challenge for us regarding do we have, where's the level of our devotion for God? If you, if you follow Christ, where is our level of devotion to Christ? Just not trying to be a Ruth. I don't want to paint that. But I mean, just as a point of comparison, where is our devotion to God and how is it reflected in our devotion to one another? That for me is the easy. To love God in many ways is easy. To love God's people is not the same. It, it is very challenging, and we all know this. But the two are directly related to one another and display a true surprising narrative of God's converting work in our lives. As we love God's people, that's the outward display of the inward devotion for God. I mean, think about that for a moment. Look at your own soul. Let it be a point of joy as you love God's people. Or let it be a point of conviction and repentance. Don't want to bring guilt to your life. But if the, con- if the conviction of God's spirit's there, then repent. He's faithful and just to forgive us. But another thing I'd like you to consider in this kind of second movement is the power of a witness under great tragedy. Where did Ruth learn these things? She learned them from Naomi. Now listen, we look at Naomi with a bit of a sideward glance, like, I mean, she's dropping the ball all over the place here. I mean, she really is faltering in faith. Well, hold on for a minute now. I I don't want to just cast Naomi out so quickly. I want you to realize that the converting words in 16 and 17 are following Naomi's words about God in 13, where he says that the hand of the Almighty is against me. In other words, I, I think for a minute, Naomi is actually speaking out of faith. She knows that it's God's hand. She knows that he's sovereign even over her miseries. I don't think she's griping. I think she's groaning. I think she's groaning under the the bitter part of life that she is suffering under. I mean, look at her life. Ten years, three massive losses, the loss of all kinds of dreams. I mean, let's just give her a break for a minute. I mean, she has been through the ringer. And she's saying, the hand of the Almighty is against me. She doesn't mean as if God's against her. The life that she is has been hard. There's nothing in this text that will speak about her doing something wrong. There's no no repercussions here that she's bearing out for some sin. So so we're kind of left. Just, Just take a step back and consider her perhaps like Job. You know, under the mystery of suffering, shroud it in the mystery. It's difficult. But her witness was such that led led Ruth to God. Seeing faithfulness under fire is 
It's good evangelism. You know, a candle burns brightest in a really dark hole. And when life is really dark and someone's even flickering for Christ, it really is profound. So when you look at the history of your own suffering and trials, how do you see yourself? In, in what, if you were to compare yourself to one of these three women, what would it be? Are you hanging on? Are you, are you groaning now for mercy like Naomi was? Has it brought you to faith? For some of you, you've suffered and it's moved you to God. Others, perhaps it's pushed you away from God. As Edgar was praying, maybe it's hardened your soul to God. Well, let's look at the third movement for a minute now. Back in, back in 19, so you, you have this journeying back, and now it's Ruth and Naomi, and they re-enter Jerusalem. And the crowds are stirred. The people are stirred. They're stirred. The word has an excitement to it. Probably because they hadn't seen her in 10 years. And they're saying, hey, is this Naomi? Now, after 10 years, um, after you see friends after a few years, you kind of tend to change a little. And uh, maybe a few gray hairs and a few wrinkles. But but I think they're stirred. Is this Naomi? And, of course, that's when she brings up this idea. She says, no, no, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara. And and she speaks about, about the bitterness and about the hardship and the hand of calamity has been against her. Again, I would caution moving her into a position of faithless. I, I, I think she's speaking to the nature, and she's not saying God is embittered to her, but she has gone through bitterness, and I think we can all agree with that. I mean, she is simply joining, she's joining Joseph. She's joining uh, Jeremiah. She's joining the psalmist who see the sovereign hand of God even over their misery. Now, folks, just remind me for a minute, or just let me remind you for a second. I'm thankful for this. Because if we don't see it's the merciful hand of God guiding us in suffering, what does that leave us as an alternative? Is it happenstance? Is it random? Is it just life? God's on some other planet? Think about what the alternative is. Think about the rest that comes to us, that if we're going to suffer, I want God's hand guiding it. I don't want it to be unguided or uncontrolled or by some wicked ruler. I want it to be guided by a merciful God. And that's what she's saying here. It has been bitter times. But you begin to see the glimpse of God's mercy begin to come up in chapter 1, not just in verses 6 and 7, but look in 22. I think the storyteller here is trying to back us away from the edge of the cliff a little bit. And in 22, we read this at the end of the verse. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That's really remarkable. Many people read right over that and they just keep on cruising to chapter two. Do you see what he's saying here? They're coming back to Bethlehem at the time of harvest. Time of harvest was a time of feasting and rejoicing. Look in verse 1. When did they leave Bethlehem? They left in a time of famine. When are they coming back? In a time of feasting, a time of harvest. God's grace is now beginning to reveal itself in this story. And it's going to do it in profound ways. <clears throat> so when we look at the story, let me just give you a couple practical considerations regarding how we can spy out God's hidden mercy in the midst of misery. How can we begin to look for those rays of, those shafts of light beginning to break through to us in our misery? We're never alone in misery. We don't always see it, 
just as in an overcast day, you don't see the sun, but it is there. And so it is with God. So let me give you a couple of practical considerations here. Number one would be this. That you would pursue humility in the face of darkness. See, the temptation is when, when misery comes or darkness comes, we're going to question God, we're going to run away from God, we're going to, be able to, we're going to hold God in contempt. And I think you're going to see in this story kind of the outworking of God's grace in time. So I'm asking us to just pursue a humility that recognizes we might not perceive all the benefits of the misery while we're in it. That, that, that God's going to be working out his perfect plan in our life, fashioning us through the difficulty. I would just propose that to you. I, I think many times we come to the door of misery, we just enter into it, and we immediately want to get out. We want to get over it, around it. We want to be delivered from it. I totally understand that. But I think we have to just humble ourselves before God and say that your perfect hand has led me to this perfect place of which you must lead me through. I think it's worthwhile to ask for wisdom to understand it. This is what James encourages us. In, in chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, when you encounter these trials and you want to know, you're trying to humble yourself, <clears throat> ask him for grace. The reason he put that offer of wisdom following trials is because he knows we need it. Remember, God's fashioning us in this. We need to humble ourselves under that. Samuel Rutherford was a, a Puritan minister in England in the 17th century, experienced great suffering. In fact, in fact spent months in the um, Tower of London. Even spent time in the Tower of London with his father there. Here's what he wrote to a dear friend about suffering. He says this, and it's the title of the sermon, simply, that some graces grow best in winter. There's some things that God is doing in us are just going to take place in winter and not in summer when we think all the growing should be done. So let us pursue humility. Encourage one another. But, but, but secondly, let's rejoice over the fact that God is sovereign over the lives of ordinary people. I mean, we're a bunch of ordinary people. We tend to look at the scriptures, David and and we look at Peter and Paul, and yeah, God's working sovereignly in their lives and bringing them to places that they need to be to advance the gospel. But let me remind you, this is an ordinary, I would even dare say common family. And God yet is intimately involved in the details of all of their lives, as he is yours. I think we tend to think that we're so far back in the bleachers that God doesn't know us. He knows the big players, he knows the smart ones, he knows the ones that are most popular, but we're just way back in the nosebleed section. Not so. He chose to do a profound work through a very ordinary family. And that's encouragement to us. That though we're ordinary, God is extraordinary in moving through us. And then thirdly, I would ask you to follow God, trusting in his sovereignty where he may be leading you. Look at Ruth in this situation here. I mean, Ruth drops everything like it's a hot potato to go after God. She sees God. She sees his beauty. She sees his glory. 
And so everything gets revalued according to the glory of God. And so it is easy to let go of, to engage in. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to all become missionaries. If you do, we're going to have trouble supporting you because nobody will be here. But, But it does mean incrementally looking at your life as God calling you to move forward and in faithfulness in a ministry, or greater greater obedience in life? Where is God leading? Where have you been thinking, no, I can't? And then beginning to put that in light of who God is. So, I mean, he's calling us to an obedience. He's calling us to follow with an abandonment. He's calling us to embrace sacrifice. And as we're going to see through the book, it's going to work out quite well for Ruth. And then last, I would say to you that I that in looking and trying to spy out the grace of God, his hidden mercy in these difficulties, is to fight for faith. You you know, when you don't have faith, when you're either surrounded by unbelief or ignorance, it's very hard to see the purposes of God in suffering. I think you see that in Naomi. When Naomi says, she's waffling here a little bit, when she says, I left full, I came back empty. Now, did she come back empty? Well, she came back with Ruth, And coming back with Ruth means that she came back really full. I mean, they left hungry, but in chapter 2, through Ruth, they're going to be really well fed. And then she left without thinking, I can't provide a husband for Ruth. Chapter 3, God provides a husband for Ruth and a home for Naomi. They left without any sort of grandchildren, any sort of lineage, Naomi left in despair. And yet in chapter 4, we find through Ruth, the fullness come in a child being born. And this child being born, of course, is going to be the grandfather of David, the greatest king, who's going to be the one seed passes through him to the very Messiah. So you have this, you have this picture in Ruth, kind of a paradigm really of the gospel. You know, when you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see this life lived and it ends in such tragedy, right? Everybody goes back to being in despair over the death of Christ. And then then through the resurrection and ascension, sitting at the right hand of God, you see we're all surprised by the joy of that. And and Ruth is kind of that way. We're going to see this building up of despair giving way to delight. This surprise, this suffering giving way to satisfaction, this trial giving way to triumph. It's really what the gospel is for us. It's really a profound book. I I want to encourage you as we continue to move through it, to read through it each week. It only takes you about 25 minutes to read through it. It's only four short chapters. We see deep misery here. All of us are going to walk through it in some measure. We see responses to that misery. We see the response of Ruth just jump off the page with beauty. And then we see the hidden mercies of God that were trailing them the whole time. They just didn't see it. And so we talked about ways to see the hidden mercy of God in the midst of trials. Let me pray for us, and then I'll give a few words and invite uh, the elders to lead in communion. Father, uh, we do thank you for the grace you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And Father, we see this gem of the Old Testament set as a key uh, link between your grace offered to us in Genesis 2 and the grace revealed to us in Jesus Christ 
this book is critical for us to understand life and to understand Christ. Give us the eyes to see it. And you've reminded us last week when your son asked Bartimaeus, what can I do for you? Give me sight, Father. Give us sight to see the beauty of Christ that we too would follow with, without restriction, without, without limit, with great delight. Transform us, Father. Those that are suffering now, would you bring hope? Would you edify? Would you encourage them with hope that you are yet at work in the midst of their struggles? And Father, for those of us who are on the precipice of misery or struggle or trial or just difficulties, Father, let these words, let them sink deep within our soul that through the power of your spirit you would bring them up that we might walk by faith even in seasons, even in colder seasons than we may be in now. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.